sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, uh, Executive Director of Institutional Analytics, Effectiveness, and Strategic Planning at Jacksonville University. And today I'm joined by Brian Smikowski, an Associate Professor at the University of Idaho in Political Science. Brian, good to talk to you again. Thanks, Will. Good to talk to you, too. I think we're going to have a fun week this week. We've obviously had a, what I like is a variety of stories and a variety of things happening to really talk about. Um, so being able to discuss everything from, uh, obviously, the the death of Jeffrey Epstein, being able to look at Netanyahu's decision as it relates to U.S. reps to leave in Omar, looking at what's happened this week with John Hickenlooper and Beto O'Rourke and Joe Biden, um, and then ultimately looking at the new immigration rules that Trump's put out and really thinking about not just how that impacts immigration today, but really the question of the American dream in general. So it should be a nice, diverse show for us in a, a lot of different areas to cover. I agree. Looking forward to it. So let's go ahead and start off with the uh, the death of, of Epstein uh, last weekend. Um, and again, I, I can't start this by saying that I think anybody's really too sad that Epstein's dead, even those who might benefit from him not being able to discuss whatever he may or may not know about them. Um, but obviously, I think what's interesting is how all of the news this week has really focused on smaller circumstances around his death. Um, I've learned more about the infrastructure and the, the building of the human neck than I ever thought I needed to know as a political scientist trying to figure out what this little bone does and how you actually break it. Um, we've heard about the Clintons, obviously. I've seen lots of, of great work on Twitter trying to comically bring in the, the Clinton conspiracy. And then also the almost more serious part here about what it means for prison reform. How was Epstein able to either successfully hang himself or uh, be murdered, depending on which route you go on the conspiracy, and we'll cover it all. But what are your thoughts on, on what happened with Epstein and what it means for, for all of those things we started to kind of mention? Well, starting at the beginning, Will, I, I agree that there's not a lot of public sentiment that's going to be like, what a tragic loss, you know, to the world. Um, every death is a tragedy. However, here's a guy who was convicted of charges of sex trafficking and conspiracy to engage in sex trafficking. Um, and, you know, we obviously know that the Clintons are somehow behind it because he can't prove that they're not. So therefore they're guilty. This is something that goes round and round going back to Clinton's time in office when there were some curious deaths. But I think you're right. that. Well, let's it, be honest brings, for the Clintons there right there, though. I mean, if they're not somehow affiliated with all these deaths, they are the most unlucky people, and I would never want to be friends with them. Um, well, because bad things seem to happen after you go to dinner with Clintons. Yeah, I mean, bad, bad things do seem to happen when you go to dinner with the Clintons. And worse things happen when you're in jail. And to the point on prison reform, I think one of the things that we do need to be mindful of is um, the way that the incarceration system operates, right? Once you're incarcerated, um, Every attempt is made to basically remove one from the ability to harm oneself and take one's own life. But in this regard, you know, one of the things that we know about suicide, unfortunately, and very tragically, is very much that where there's a will, there's a way. And here's a guy who's staring down a barrel of, you know, sex trafficking and conspiracy charges. It's not a good way to endure one's life. There's a lot of public shame and humiliation. And, um, and I think the choice that he made, tragic though it is, when we look at the aggregate data on suicide, I think it tells us, you know, I, I think the conspiracies need to kind of wash away. And we need to focus on the fact that here's a guy who was in jail and um, basically made a decision to uh, terminate his own life and, and set aside all the conspiracies. I really don't think the Clintons are behind this one. 
And, and I don't disagree. I mean, I don't think the Clintons are really behind this. I, I definitely think there are some, some individuals that Epstein could have brought news forward about that are probably sleeping a little easier, um, knowing that he's no longer able to talk or sing or whatever he might have decided to do. Um, it seems like from talking to his lawyers this week and reading those details that he was appearing to be somewhat willing to, to cooperate and looking forward to uh, maybe not clearing his name, obviously, but helping to bring some others onto the boat with him to the bottom of the ocean. Um, but I think it is interesting on the conspiracy part because it's just seemed to just grab America's attention. I mean, one of the best op-eds I've read in a long time was this week in the New York Times. Uh, and it was Walter Kern talking about, you know, I consider myself educated. I think that we landed on the moon. I think that Al-Qaeda blew up everything on 9-11. But for some reason, I find myself going down this rabbit hole related to Epstein and the Clintons. And I can't get myself out of it because it has such such grasp. And I think even on the Politics Guys Facebook page, when this sort of came up, that idea of, you know, I consider myself rational and sane. And I understand that this was an individual with nowhere to go who decided to to end his life in prison using, um, you know, what he had available to do so. But at the same time, it's like, or maybe the Clintons were there. Maybe there was a last visit. Why is there no video? Why are there huge gaps? Why wasn't he being monitored? Why did they pull him off of suicide watch after uh, the first attack, allegedly by his former cellmate, the which was described as the very large ex-cop? Um, and I think that's the problem with these conspiracies. When it came to Epstein, it immediately came back to, well, I'm sure they're not going to have video. I'm sure he's been secretly moved or a roommate removed or something in the last 24 hours. I'm sure this and this and this. I'm sure the autopsy could be interpreted multiple ways. And then everything comes out and it's check, 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 check. Oh, my God. Um, what possibly has gone on? What could have happened? Um, especially given the amount of money and the amount of power that Epstein had access to. I mean, when we look at his history and what's come out, I mean, obviously everything related to, to his personal life is problematic. But even on the business side, uh, you now have former close friends saying the guy mismanaged money and I never looked at it because I just trusted him. Um, and not small people, but I mean, you're looking at, at individuals with, you know, major brands across the United States. And we have to wonder, you know, was this something where the inconvenience of Epstein being able to talk led to some people, if they weren't involved, at least wishing that this would be the, the end for him. Yeah, I think conspiracy theories are sort of their, their own unique nut to try to crack, right? Like, why do they emerge? Why do they evolve? And, you know, we look for little breadcrumbs and little Easter eggs and say, aha, you know, if we look at this and isolate this one thing, there's no video. If there's no video, there's got to be a crime. If there's oversight, if there's an attempted murder by a very large uh, former cop, you could put the pieces together and say all of these things seem to circumstantially add up to something other than a person looking at um, a life in jail uh, and ending his own life, coming through other means. But I think you're right to the point that he's had a lot of nefarious relationships with other people. And over the years, we've seen that there were some crests in his relationships. In fact, in 2002, Donald Trump was interviewed and he's like, yeah, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. You know, the, the typical Donald Trump kind of response. He's a lot of fun to be with. It's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do. And many of them are on the younger side, right? That captures sort of the essence of Donald Trump circa 2002, um, circa 2019 also, but maybe not with the uh, particular aplomb in a public sphere. And not with 12-year-olds. 
Yeah, right. And then now we're looking at, you know, Donald Trump after the arrest and he immediately distances himself from this guy, you know, arguing that he had a falling out with him in a light of the falling out with him. Um, you know, he's saying he hasn't spoken to him in 15 years and suddenly arguing, I'm not a fan of his, that I can tell you. And in this regard, you know, I'd say that's conspicuously little from somebody like Donald Trump. But then again, that's exactly what uh, Donald Trump does is he doesn't go way overboard. I think there's a misconception that he goes way overboard. He he will say a variety of things that we could say are great sound bites or really stupid observations. But somewhere in the middle, what we find is that he really puts just enough out there to basically say, this is my opinion. This, therefore, is public opinion for my cross section of the electorate. When he says, I'm not a fan of his, I can tell you that. I think for the people on the Trump side, they simply see Donald Trump as he's not a friend of him, you know, of, of his. He's disassociated himself from that relationship. The Clintons, however, you know, and that's always going to be there because, you know, we're talking about pizza parlor raids for crying out loud. You know, <laughs> here's a here's a guy who actually, um, by all accounts, was involved in sex trafficking of minors. But then there's one outlandish. He was a pimp. I mean, if everything that was said was true, he was a pimp. <laughs> yeah, I'm dancing around those words, Will. Thanks for throwing it out there. Yeah. And, and I mean, I just think it's interesting that, I mean, and again, I mean, you look at the unraveling and the intersection of money and politics and power. I mean, this is a guy who's almost a billionaire, has a submarine, has the largest home in Manhattan, has a private island. Um, and I mean, I can see the the desperation of you go from that as your life to being in the prison cell and knowing in his case that it doesn't matter who he sings about, he's not going to leave that prison ever. Um, and again, I mean, I wasn't surprised at all by the medical examiner's ruling. I mean, if I sat there and knew it was Epstein and what had just happened, I'm sure as heck not going to say that it was anything but um, what it hopefully likely was. Um, the bigger question for me, and I think the more societally important question about all of this, though, is the fact that as we've gone through and looked at this, how inept that prison was run. Um, the idea that the guards are on extra overtime um, because they're so short staffed. The fact that Epstein was taken off of suicide watch, um, despite from from what most described behaviors that would suggest it was possibly necessary still. Uh, when it comes to the prison system in general, uh, what do we need to do? What are the problems? Is this just an opportunity to kind of highlight those? Um, but if you think about it, this is a, a high profile person. This is not your average Joe prisoner. And if we're still managing to mess this one up, it makes me wonder about what else is falling through the cracks with with our more street level petty crime. Yeah, I think that, you know, honestly, Will, I don't think that there's going to be much that's going to be done in light of this, because the, in a court of public opinion, what do you think the public opinion about life in jail for white collar criminals is? And here again, you know, he's not exactly a white collar criminal, but he had the whitest of collars. You know, when when your circle includes people like Donald Trump, the Clintons, Prince Andrew, multimillionaire people who said, oh, yeah, I've been on this guy's plane. What do you think public opinion is about people in that category in jail? And again, I mean, it's, it's the Martha Stewart effect. White collar crime, it goes back to, oh, you know, it's different. Economic crime is not viewed the same as anything else in this country. Right. But what happens is that uh, in the court of public opinion, these prison terms are seen as resort stays. I mean, I'm, I'm embellishing for effect here, but we have one image of what 
jail is like and what prison's like for hardened criminals. And that's been cultivated, of course, through shows like Oz and other things that we've seen in, involving being scared straight, that prison's a bad place that we all know that we don't want to be. But when it comes to very wealthy individuals who are incarcerated, there's a public perception, right or wrong, that it's really not that bad. You know, you are more likely to have a private cell than a shared cell. Even if you have a shared cell, it's not going to be an overcrowded cell. And under these circumstances, you know, your food's really not going to be that bad. You're going to get to read. Heck, you might even complete a college degree and get to watch some TV. Prison, I think, in the eyes of many Americans, when it comes to people of a certain economic stature, Prison is not seen as, oh, that bad. So I don't think there's going to be a flood to prison reform because of this particular suicide. Now, having said that, I think that we definitely need to look more closely as a matter of public policy with how this aspect of the judicial system going into the incarceration system operates. Because whether you are a blue-collar criminal or a white-collar criminal or a no-collar criminal, you know, whether you committed the most heinous of offenses or you're there, you know, Washington State Supreme Court just upheld the three strikes and you're in law, basically saying that the policies that apply to juveniles don't pertain to the three strikes, even if one of the crimes you committed was when you were a juvenile, right? So we understand that there's some really harsh, and I would argue constitutionally suspect and problematic policies that affect what happens with people who go to jail, the sentencing that they receive, and the life that they endure while they're incarcerated. I think we need to think about what the purpose of the prison is and to be able to say, like medical doctors, right? And in interns, you shouldn't be doing, you know, 16-hour shifts fairly routinely, right? You should have a normal rotation of security. You should have a normal rotation of monitoring. You should have greater recording of all events. And we're talking digitally and also observationally. And I think that there needs to be a lot of reform within the prisons. And that's harder to do because a lot of prisons have become privatized. And we need to have a little bit more attention or a lot more attention put on uh, to the process of who gets incarcerated, with what kinds of sentences, and then what the reality of prison is for those people once they're incarcerated. Yeah, and I agree. And I think that's where it gets tough, especially with, um, you know, increasing mental health problems across the country already. You add in the variable of now I am in prison and mental health concerns are going to, to escalate quickly, I imagine. Um, so, I mean, I don't think the idea of we, we can't take the sheets off the bed. Um, we can't make this something where there's there's no way there's no way we can guarantee prisoners um, aren't going to possibly commit suicide other than what strapping them all in the chair with the helmets and the pads, which isn't going to be viewed as as legal or not cruel or unusual. So we're basically stuck with something where we have to figure out how to better monitor this. I mean, I go back to the Panopticon. The Panopticon was great to be able to see what people were doing. It wasn't going to help you stop somebody from doing something, though, um, depending on that response time. Um, but it's definitely something to be said, I think, here that the issues that are coming up were not just things that could be tied back to political conveniences. Um, this is the day-to-day -day life for a lot of individuals that are working in uh, the prisons within our country. Um, you know, there is the question of, obviously, from an accountability perspective, does this play out differently if it's privatized? Um, is there an incentive? Is there something to fall back on? Is there a way to punish or expect better controls if it's contracted out? But as we know from the research and the literature, that brings all of its own problems anyways. Um, so it's really just coming back to that question of what can we do to prevent things like this from happening for average Joe in me? I don't even care about Epstein at this point. 
It's how do we prevent this and make sure that individuals, even if they're being tried for the most horrible of crimes, um, are given an opportunity to be in a good mental state as they go through this process, or at least the best mental state they can be given what they're facing. Yeah, and I think one of the most important things, Will, is to focus on the the reason why we have prisons. And, you know, there's a deeper philosophical argument about whether jails are these cages where we put the dangerous animals to keep them away from society. And this this notion is that they're in there, like chomping at the bit, waiting to get out of that cage so they could go out and commit crimes again. And we do know that if we adopt that sort of uh, mindset and don't do much human intervention as positive, you can learn a lot of new skills while you're in prison, just like you can learn a lot of new skills, um, you know, sitting in the office talking to colleagues who do things differently. If we flip the script on it and say, what can happen? If we if we reduce or eliminate that, that prism through which we typically view prisons as big cages that we put bad people in to keep society safe and say, you know, the vast majority of people who go into jail come back out. Who do you want as your next door neighbor? The person you want as your next door neighbor is a person who was in jail and received support, right? To be able to come out as a contributing member of society. Equally importantly, to be able to work on themselves. I mean, if we if we want to get to some of the root causes, like you said, well, it's really not about Epstein anymore. It's about the average person who's incarcerated. If we want to reduce the number of suicides in jail, just like if we want to reduce the number of suicides of people not in jail, it really comes down to focusing on what the degree of psychological intervention is and what the degree of mental um, health care is that we can make available. Right now, I think the public appetite, if we said we want to raise more tax dollars to be able to provide for um, mental health care for prison inmates, I think a lot of people are going to say, good luck with that one, buddy. But yep. I think that's one of the most important things that we need to do. Yeah, Focus and I can tell you, I mean, it's, it's cutting on that because, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about this and I was just saying, I mean, I agree. We need to do something to help this. But if I have to give an extra dollar to anybody, even coming from the right, I care more about the immigrant children than I do prisoners. Um, so, I mean, it's that idea of we don't have the money to do everything for everyone. If we're going to be sitting there looking to make somebody's lives better, I'm even saying let's look at the immigration piece more so than worry about American citizens that have been convicted by a jury of their peers and sentenced to a punishment um, that hopefully still leads to some reform as well. Good point. Um, and I'll wrap this little segment by just saying I, I forget who it was on our Facebook page this week who gave the ultimate conspiracy theory of that Epstein is pulling a Hannibal Lecter um, and has reentered society somehow. Um, so again, we know that this will continue to be a subject of debate. This is probably one that will live on forever, um, in some ways, but, um, definitely worth talking about on all, on all fronts. Uh, and let's switch gears and talk about Netanyahu's decision over the last week to not, um, allow representatives to leave an Omar to enter Israel for the purposes of visiting the West Bank and Palestine. Um, very interesting decision. Lots of backlash. It has obviously brought back to the forefront the discussion of the relationship between the United States and Israel. I think it's also brought up the discussion of that relationship under President Trump versus under President Obama. Um, and it's definitely raising some, some concerns about fairness, about how we're treating diplomats, about the purposes of their visit. Brian, were you surprised by Netanyahu's decision? Um, what do you think it means? What do you think it means in the future? I think three things, actually. One is, <laughs> I'm limiting myself. I think only three things, Well, yeah. <laughs> um, But but first, I, I the first thing I thought about before I even got to Netanyahu was I thought about Trump. You know, here we have a president of the United States, and presidents historically have kind of 
not interjected on these types of issues, right? Here's two members of our American government. And now, can we argue that Tlaib and Omar are basically as far from Trump on the ideological continuum as two members of Congress can be? Yes. Well, of course. Of course we can. But basically what Trump did was he went out and basically made a public proclamation that here's two people who should not be leaving a country to code to this land where I've got a great you know relationship with Benji. And um, Benji, don't let him into your country. So basically, though, through the public pronouncement, I mean, obviously it wasn't that way. It was putting pressure, diplomatically putting pressure on Netanyahu to say, you know, if you value our relationship, you shouldn't let these two individuals into your country. And then we have Netanyahu responding in a way that's favorable um, to the administration. And then we get, you know, you use the term backlash, but in this case, there's actually backlash, frontlash, there's whiplash. It's all the way around because you have Tlaib basically arguing that, you know, she wanted to go visit her 90-year-old grandmother. It might be the last time she'd get a chance to see her. And she wants to pick figs with her and, you know, this great tug at the heartstrings thing. But then they say, well, you know, you just have to sign something saying basically you're not going to come here and be an agitator. And then she withdrew her application to go once the invitation was extended to her to be to arrive. And now she's got interesting pressures from both sides, even within her own family. There are people who say and understand the reasons why she did what she did. But there are people that say she should have risen above and gone on to the um, to make the visit. Politically, there's the question um, with Israel and, and Palestine about what her decision means and the predicament that she's in politically and personally in trying to go and having that become a very political matter and then having the opportunity to go and then declining the invitation to go. It's actually much more complicated than it seems, but really what it's proving on the larger diplomatic uh, tier, Will, is that you know, presidents are, they're not just sending the informal signals that we know presidents historically have always sent. Here, it's a matter of publicly making a statement about two two members of American government and arguing that it would be unwise for one of our allies to admit them into their country. And that's relatively unprecedented. That is unprecedented. Um, and I do think it's interesting in general. I mean, I, I would openly say that I believe it's within Israel's right to obviously not allow these individuals to enter, especially because I do think they were making this trip yeah, as much as that grandma story tugs at my heartstrings, they're going for political reasons. Um, and you can see how this plays out either way. So if they go and they see misery, they come back and they talk about how awful Israel is. If they go and see great things, they come back and talk about how Israel only showed them good things and didn't let them go where they really wanted to go and see anything that could be deemed be deemed difficult. But you're right. I think that's a very interesting point in the fact that Trump became the face of this in a way that we typically haven't seen. Um, from any democratically elected leaders. And I think this is starting to reflect in general diplomacy under Trump more and more. I mean, the other thing that happened in the last week, obviously, is uh, Ambassador Huntsman announcing that he's going to leave his post in Russia um, to return home to Utah to spend time with family, um, which is the most coerced, fake-sounding line I've heard on this one, especially given where he is in his career and coming off of being able to serve for uh, a period of time in China and now Russia and having a lot of opportunity for power and influence and saying, no, no, I'm good. I think that has more to do with how we see diplomacy. And part of that's that diplomacy by social media. Um, ironically, I mean, we're looking at two members of Congress here who also have uh, used social media to gain fame on their own. Um, so we do have a lot of different variables at play from Israel's stance to their response 
Um, and again, as you pointed out, Israel was clear on we were ready to let them in. They just opted to not do this, and they canceled their trip. Yeah, um, and there's the, the two sides to it. One is this isn't the first time in history that Israel has decided to deny admission to its country, right? Nope. This is not politically the most either. Thing exactly. I mean, we've done this over politics before. Exactly. But the thing is, when you have a president, a sitting United States president, democratically elected president, who basically goes out there and says, not these two, if it was other two people, the idea of basically having a nice list and your naughty list and then using your um, your status as the nation's chief diplomat, using your status as the leader of the free world, as they say, to be able to say, there's better people to let into your country, and there's some people we don't want to go there because the minute they come back, people are going to say, oh, welcome back from your trip to Israel. What did you learn? What did you see? What did you hear? And then it's the fear of what could come out of their mouths that's motivating this. But it's also it's a, it's a power play. It was a very easy power play for Trump to just get out there and say, these two people should not be leaving the country to go to Israel. Israel should not let them into the country. And immediately it, it takes on a life and a force of its own. And is it, effect, is it adversely affecting Trump? No, it's not. Is it attaching an increasingly negative stigma from Trump's side to this category of politicians? Because remember, there's sort of the famous four politicians that Trump's got a real problem with, right? And what he's doing is he's using that category of Democrats as the representation and portrayal of mainstream Democratic candidates. So it's another way to elevate. It was sort of an easy opportunity for him to be able to latch on to something and say, here's, for example, two people. Let's draw attention to them. Those are the Democrats, portraying the Democrats as this more radical, more progressive, incredibly liberal cross-section of the American electorate, when in reality, the people that we see on stage at the debates, you know, this this isn't um, this isn't where the mainstream of the party is. And by the way, that's not a criticism of Tlaib and Omar. I think incredibly highly of both of them. I mean, they fit where I stand on the ideological continuum, but it's Trump's portrayal of the Democratic Party as being much more liberal than it is. And it's just an easy way to draw attention to that claim. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I guess this all just comes back to that larger question here, too, of um, and this is where a lot of our listeners were going on social media this week. Is this another sign that we're too tied to Israel? Is this an inappropriate relationship? Is this too connected? Um, and how has that changed since Obama? I and mean, what do you think, Brian? Is this something where we're either we're steering Israel too much or allowing Israel to steer us too often? What's the power play there? Well, now, I think the power play <laughs> is I think, very personal. I think at some level, Trump um, Trump has a high degree of loyalty to people to whom to people who are loyal to him. He cultivates very, um, uh, very intense relationships, you know, whether that's in a positive way or in a negative way. And with Netanyahu, I think it's a very positive thing. And I, I don't think that it's um, any uh, it's not a spurious relationship that. He's not so kind of cozy enough to Israel as a way of being um, anti-Arab in a court of public opinion. But the thing that's kind of curious to me is, even in a court of public opinion, how so much of this radical right segment of the electorate also was not a huge fan of uh, the state of Zion. This this section of the electorate was not a huge fan of the United States' uh, relationship with Israel, and historically had seen 
the Jewish population and um, Israel as having too much influence on American life, culture, finances, and economics, and even at the most fringe level of the radical right, where we do have the white nationalists who uh, are rallying very strongly and cohesively around Trump, they haven't exactly been very kind to um, to the Jewish identity. So I think it's really kind of an interesting soup right now. I agree. And it's, it's one of the things I read this week that really got me thinking about that relationship um, was written in a, a Jewish newspaper, a Jewish news source, about the impact that this ban could have on young American progressive Jews and their views of Israel as they mature. Um, and the, ar- the article is basically making the case that what has happened here is that Netanyahu, by agreeing to this, is alienated a group of people in the United States that are now even more likely to hardline uh, their stances against against the nation of Israel as well, um, which is something that hadn't really crossed my mind or I thought about. But um, I think there's definitely something to be said there, too, for, from a, a completely different angle on how this could have a long-term impact. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Well, let's switch off of um, what's been occurring with Israel and Trump and talk about some of the Democrats that are currently uh, working to unseat him. And we'll start this conversation with uh, the worst news that Mike has received this election cycle yet, and that is that his his dear uh, candidate, John Hickenlooper, has resigned from the Democratic nomination bo- battle to return to Colorado to hopefully face Cory Gardner in the Senate. Um, and I will say something right there is if, if Hickenlooper's entire campaign has, had been like his resignation video, um, it would have been a whole different look for me on Hickenlooper. I thought it was one of the best done pieces he'd had in the entire campaign season um, as he pulls back um, and announces he's going back to the Senate. So something to be said there. And then obviously on the the counter is we have Beto O'Rourke, who everybody is clamoring in Texas to go back and face John Cornyn instead of running for president. And Beto comes out last night and says, there is absolutely no situation in which I will run for Senate. He was asked point blank, do you have December 9th circled the last day for you to declare for that? And he said, there's no chance I'm doing this. So, Brian, why do you think that Hickenlooper decided that it was time? And again, we can go beyond where he was in the polls and the fact that nobody knew who he was outside of Mike, it feels like. Um, (laughs) And Beto is pulling the opposite, even though he's actually really underperforming. He's Mm -hmm. had two abysmal debate performances. How do we rectify these differences and what do you think happens with it oh man the first thing i thought about when you made the comment about um you would have had a much more warm sentiment towards hickenlooper if his presence was more like his withdrawal speech right um i think back also democrats are just really good at having noble um, concession speeches. I think about Al Gore, you know, and when Al Gore spoke, a lot of people were like, you know, if I saw that person, if, you know, the, you know, the sleeves rolled up, drinking a beer, you know, like I gave it a good run. The system, you know, did what it did. Bush is going to be president. People looked and were like, there's the relatable guy. Why don't we see that guy on a campaign trail? Because Hickenlooper was one of those people whose who's race never it just never came together. He didn't really have a geographic or demographic base that he could appeal to and say, you know, you're mine, I'm with you, uh, I'm your voice. He was not able to really stand out or distance himself from, um, you know, kind of a younger, flashier field of candidates, right? And his presence during the debate, first time around, he didn't exactly make the most 
stunning presentation, but then he spoke even less the next time around. So I think what he did, I, you know, and I'm wondering now when I, I look back at the debate performances, and I wonder if during that second debate he was thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm not really going to be able to make it. You know, I don't have the energy, the stamina, the charisma, the demographic or the geographic base to carry me through to the finish line. So I think that was a really smart move to say, look, I don't really stand a chance. 50%, 56% of the public don't even know who I am. So I'm going to focus here on what I could do in my state and say, if I can't, if I can't represent the nation, I'm going to pick up a seat to help tip the power balance. So I think that's the Hickenlooper issue. Beto, on the other hand, is I think living in a very delusion, uh, delusionary world. And I've got, I've got very dear friends who absolutely positively love uh, Beto. And, you know, my point is, uh, yeah, I could see why you fell in love with him when he gave Cruz a run for his money and he, he came from out of nowhere and he had a message and it was resonating and he was young and he was dynamic and he was charismatic. We're not really seeing that now. He doesn't, it's kind of like he hit his plateau relatively early on. And so, you know, the Democrats are in this really interesting predicament right now of still trying to find themselves. And not anybody, you know, really rising to the surface. And and the line that you used about um, Beto saying, you know, there's no scenario under which I will run for the United States Senate. You know, when you make declaratory statements like that, it's really hard to walk your way back to that and say, well, you know, I'm not going to be president. So, you know, I'm going to do a do over on that statement. Oh, it starts one of two ways. Either Jesus tells him or his wife tells him. That's how how it begins is the Lord came to me or my wife sat me down and said, Beto, the people of Texas need you. And we know we can see him saying that um, because we've heard him say it before, basically. You know, actually, that, that's a good point. I mean, as, as kind of silly as it sounds in a way, uh, that is a good point. But the, I think the bigger question is, does he really think that he's got the message that's going to get the Democratic nomination? And I'm hard-pressed to believe that that's the case. I think that he kind of had his moments. I I don't see the traction there. I I see the the plateauing in his campaign finances. And it's it's kind of hard, you know, to realize that maybe now is not your time. And it's sometimes, I think, difficult to say. Especially when God know, has chosen you to do this. Yeah, God's chosen you to do this. You know, your family is behind you and supporting you. You really want to be president. You suddenly don't want to settle for a measly little Senate seat. But those Senate seats, like let's imagine a world in which Beto O'Rourke wins a Senate seat and Hickenlooper wins, uh, you know, a seat. You start to get that gradual offset. And we know these things that, you know, rule number one about politics is win election. Rule number two, win re-election. When you get the incumbency effect working to your advantage, if the Democrats can start tilting the balance of power in their direction through congressional seats, I think that will help the Democratic Party strategically not only define who they are and who they want in a chief executive, but also to be able to provide the votes to be able to offset the very real likelihood that we'll have another um, term with Trump in the White House. Which, I mean, it's kind of funny, as you mentioned, the idea of another term, because, I mean, that was really, that's what I remember from Hickenlooper in the debates was Hickenlooper saying that if you want Medicare for all, uh, at that point, you might as well, I believe his quote was FedEx or UPS or something, the election straight to Donald Trump. I do think what's interesting here for both of these is I have to wonder if what we're seeing today with the diversity of 
the democratic field is the death of a white male vice presidential candidate for Democrats moving forward. Um, I think a lot of this was Hickenlooper saying it doesn't really matter who wins. I'm probably not a VP choice. I would bet my money that Beto's sitting there still thinking somebody needs energetic, young Texas, speaks a little Spanish, not as good as Castro, but speaks a little Spanish. Um, and they're going to come calling for me. I just have to stay active so they don't forget who I am. Do you think that's playing into his decisions here? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still hung up on a term that you used about the death of the white. Was it, was it the death of the white male in American politics? The death of the white male vice presidential vice candidate president. in Democratic politics. I see. Yeah, I think that it's a it's a seat that not many people aspire to, and I I wonder. Just to be honest with you, I kind of feel this way. I think Joe Biden was. Um, I think he was a. You know, despite the fact that he made some you know, unfortunate statements about his early time uh, in government, and he made some unfortunate moves during his early time in government. He has, as a singular representative of the human species, evolved in his thoughts and his actions and his behaviors. And I sometimes think, and this is a terrible thing to say, I sometimes think that some people really kind of crest at that moment where I'd be a great vice president, but I don't know if I'd be a great president. Right. And I think Biden, you know, right now, it's there's actually deliberate and willful attempts to keep Biden um, to limit his exposure. And some of the articles, you know, that have been coming out lately have been, you know, talking to his uh, quote unquote allies who are coming forward and basically saying, you know, we're, we're kind of analyzing this. And when Uncle Joe gets out there, he kind of goes kind of free range, especially when it's like nap time. And they're basically saying, is that when late- he has his conversations with Margaret Thatcher still instead of Theresa May? Yes, exactly. So it's like late in the afternoon. So the argument is limit the number of um, engagements, limit the times that he speaks, and also get him in the morning because he's in a much more better and lucid state in the morning. So I think what's actually happening for the first time, or or maybe not for the first time, but it's 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 coming up a little bit more again, is that it's not so much about the gaffes, it's about his age. And there are people who are beginning to think that, you know, if he's having these late day blunders, is this basically nap time for Uncle Joe? Now, for the vice president, I don't think anybody wants to go into that realm yet. So going back to what you were saying a minute ago, Will, I think that right now it's it's early enough in a campaign where nobody wants to even utter the word vice just yet. You know, they're they're thinking about it's president. It's all or nothing. I want to be president so badly. I won't even consider the Senate, even though I know that I really don't have a chance of winning the nomination. Um, I I do think that it's not unwise for the party to start thinking about what a ticket would look like, right? What the composition of the ticket would look like. But I don't see anybody basically saying, yeah, I'd be willing to step into that role as vice president. It's, I think it's, it's the top of the ticket or nothing at all. Yeah. And I could see that too. It's just, maybe it's like you said, time to start thinking in that way. Um, especially being honest, thinking about trying to beat Trump. Um, the quicker you can unify and say, here's the package, it seems like that could be the the better this goes. And with Biden, I mean, I, the gaffes are, it, it's Joe Biden. Um, and I will say, I agree with you. I think this is reflective of um, aging. Um, I'll, I'll call it that. Um, but I, not remembering that you weren't vice president for, for a mass shooting, forgetting that Margaret Thatcher's dead and Theresa May's the prime minister or was the prime minister. Um, 
saying the the line about poor kids and white kids. Um, th- those just add up. But there's also part of me that looks at that and says that is Joe Biden. That is the epitome of Joe Biden. That is what has made Joe Biden a folk hero for so long, is that you know if you put him in front of a live mic and give him 30 minutes, he's going to say something that ticks somebody off or doesn't make sense or we can all laugh at. And he owns it. I mean, the line he gave this week that I really liked was Joe Biden saying, yeah, you know, I am a gaffe machine, but man, that's so much better than being somebody who's never capable of telling the truth. And Um, I agree. At that moment, there's there's a great quote in an article published in the Hill uh, with one of the, and they're referring to people who are supporting his campaigns and giving him advice as, you know, the allies. So I, and the quote is, I think you'll see the same schedule, maybe even more Joe Biden, because everyone wants to see Joe Biden be Joe Biden. And if he's held back in any way, that's almost the antithesis of who he is. And another ally says, I think that's the wrong approach. But here I think we'll, you know, I think think we're hitting on exactly the predicament that Biden is in, is that if he could go out there and say, look, I'm going to say some things that are wrong. And this is where I think sometimes, like, I teach constitutional law, but I can never be a lawyer, right? Because if if I'm in a class, I get on a roll. Like right now on the air, I probably said at least a thousand things that are factually incorrect. But, you know, the court of public opinion could be kind of magnanimous because I'm the crazy left wing liberal professor guy. I make mistakes. But if I'm in a court of law, then I can't. There are greater consequences. It's a more measured tone. It's clear. It's calculated. It's deliberate. And I don't run the risk of opening up my mouth and making a mistake because terrible things happen to my client if I do. Right. So for Joe Biden, when he's on a campaign trail, He's not really in policymaker mode. He's not really in strategic decision-maker mode. What he's in is public relations mode. And the bizarre thing, and I think what the Biden camp is wrestling with right now, is that part of what makes Joe Biden so endearing is the fact that he goes out there and he sometimes says really stupid stuff. But when he does, that line that you referenced, well, I think hits the nail on the head. He's a guy who says, look, I might be a gaff machine, but I'm not a liar. And, you know, that taps into something which is sort of inherent in humanity, which is our fallibility. And he owns it. Now, owning your fallibility and owning your mistakes is important, but making fewer of them is as well. That'll help you be president a whole lot faster. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think this is a, a good we're starting to see the bottoms fall. I mean, Hickenlooper, um, much to, again, like I said, Mike Chagrin is, wasn't moving up, wasn't having much trajectory. Um, I guess the last question on this is, what should Hickenlooper fans do? Um, who should Mike vote for now? You know, I'm, I'm going back to your question about the vice president's role and Mayor Pete, right? Where does he stand in this? Because if we think about the kinds of He's got attributes. a heck of a lot of money. He's got a heck of a lot of money, and his capacity to bring in more is is really impressive. He's got the star power that he could bring because, you know, it's very popular to support the candidate with the attributes and the ideas that he has. I still think that I'd be – I still think that he's not ready for prime time at the executive – chief executive level. But I could Mayor Pete be the entirely competent and ascending – president by serving as vice president, which means, you know, who's going to be at the top of the ticket. So I think that where the support would go from Hickenlooper, you know, would would they end up being default Beto people? I, I don't I don't know where they would lie. I mean, here we've got Colorado, which is a legalization state. And um, 
We have Texas, which is not. not, And we have a candidate whose charisma has kind of peaked in Beto. And we have a candidate whose charisma has failed in Hickenlooper. Sorry, Mike. Um, But where where are those votes going to go? I don't think Beto is going to pick them up. I don't think that they're going to drift to the candidates who are – you know, I, I don't see um, Harris necessarily picking him up or Booker picking him up. So who's going to pick up that cross section of, of the electorate? That's that's trickier, you know, I, I think, to predict. Yep. What do you- I, I mean, I lean towards Mayor Pete, um, but with a lot of the same concerns. I mean, it's just such a it's such a contested race right now with so many similarities and differences. I mean, trying to Venn diagram out everybody that's running and where they're similar and different, it would be an impossible task. Um, so I'd say Mayor Pete, but, but I'm also with you. I've said on this show multiple times, I think Washington, D.C. would eat Mayor Pete alive. Um, in the last few weeks, I did start to realize that, you know, to some extent, you know, we can say that he may not be ready to be the top executive, but as a mayor, he's had more executive experience than Barack Obama had prior to to going to D.C., and he seemed to do just fine with it. So maybe I'm wrong on that, but I think it'll be interesting to watch for sure. I agree. Um, so let's go ahead and switch to our last story here. Um, this week, the Trump administration introduced new immigration rules, which is going to make it incredibly difficult for individuals to get either permanent or temporary visas that are not meeting income standards or receiving public assistance. Um, this is clearly designed to allow immigration more easily for certain types of people than others. Um, and again, I find myself somewhat torn on this. I think Trump's within his power to do this. Um, I understand the benefit of getting in more doctors than getting in individuals who are going to immediately go on to um, programs that are subsidized by American taxpayers. And I also think that Donald Trump's honestly following through with the campaign promise here. I think his base is going to be thrilled about this. But I also wonder about what that means for the American dream. Um, if we think about going back to Ellis Island, what would the litmus test have been there in terms of how much income do you need if we were still limiting what comes into the United States? And then to the bigger picture of just, you know, what's it mean for America? What's it mean for the American dream? So, so Brian, what do you think about the immigration piece? And what do you think about that larger context of, you know, what does this mean for what our country is? I'm not a big fan that tradition dictates tomorrow. But are we going too far too fast? And are we leaving 50% or maybe even more of our country behind in these decisions? Well, that's a lot. Uh, if I go back to the beginning with, you know, your opening series of lines, you know, you said that you believe that Trump is within his right as president to be able to do this. And I would argue that, you know, technically as, as a matter of policy, law and policy, He is. I mean, the public charge provision has been something that's been part of our law and in this capacity, in this way, for about 140 years. So this isn't something new. It's not like the Trump administration woke up one day and said, let's create this new rule. Um, What they did was they created new rules that attached to an existing rule. So the public charge, remember, is defined as people who would be, quote unquote, primarily dependent on the government for assistance. Um, And this goes to Cuccinelli's argument that the policy, the Trump policy, will encourage self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And so what it's basically doing is saying we're trying to come up with a responsible uh, American citizenry. Now, the flip side of it, of course, is that the public charge 
is being manipulated in a way to say, look, there's been some some policies that have come up um, in a time since, you know, 140 years have transpired. We have Medicaid. We have policies that exist almost exclusively or exclusively for the economic underclass. And even though we find statistically to the extent that we have good and reliable data that's accessible on access to things like food stamps and Medicaid, we're talking in a range of only six to seven percent of legal immigrants who use these policies. So on one hand, we could say, well, that's certainly there's no real evidence of this being an abusive cross-section of the American population. On the other hand, one might say, well, it's really kind of a small cross-section of people to begin with. So why do we care so much? Well, the reason why we care is that these are people who are legally in the country. And I think right now, part of the the gloomy scenario that this is painting is that we have a president who's saying, I want to build a wall and keep people out of the country. And he has utterly mischaracterized the population of people who are coming across into our country, either legally or illegally, by saying, for example, Mexico doesn't send us uh, their best people. They're sending us basically the dregs of their society who then become the drags on our society. Right. It's a mischaracterization, mischaracterization, but it works for his cross section of the electorate. So what we have is a president who's building a wall to keep people out, but then also looking internally as a way to get people who are in out of the country. And, you know, another term for this will is a purge. You know, when we see the raids that happened, you know, and, and right, you know, coming on the heels of some really awful things happening in contemporary America, we see the um ice raiding Mississippi poultry processing plants and, you know, doing their largest sweep ever, right? And what are we seeing? We're seeing keeping people out and then finding people who are here. Some might be illegal, get them out. But here we see sort of the third leg of the stool of identifying the population that's here legally and identifying them according to socioeconomic status and the perceived public charge that they will be to the American economic system and saying, well, let's just get rid of them as well. I think this is, you know, if, if this is keeping America great, um, I'm, I'm pretty ashamed of that image of what America is. Yeah, and I can understand that. I, I mean, let's use the Mississippi example, though. I mean, ultimately, it was what, just under 700 individuals? Yeah. And they were, for the majority, if not all, undocumented workers. Sure. Or individuals who did not come through the system. And this is where I fall on immigration reform, where I have no problem with undocumented workers being found and sent back. But I also think we owe it to individuals trying to enter the United States to have an open, transparent, fair process in place for getting here. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of, you know, for these 680 that end up getting sent home, come back and try it the legal way, but we need to make the legal way something that's actually manageable and doesn't cost you multiple attorneys and money to have a chance at. Um, and I think that's where I get concerned about Trump's rulings this week. I get the idea of wanting self-reliance. I do not love the idea of my money going towards individuals who are not U.S. citizens that are living in the United States. But at the end of the day, I'll take that all day, every day from people that want to come here, want to contribute, want to better themselves, as opposed to some of the other alternatives. And again, I come back to that American dream idea that, you know, Brian, you and I have talked about offline. But I mean, in the big picture, 
Um, I think you're right. If that's going to be the symbol of what America is, it's a very different symbol than I learned in elementary school. It is. And, you know, we could look at some of the layers beneath this. So if we, we peel back petal by petal, this um, blossoming flower of immigration reform that the administration's uh, been on, we find that there's also this tendency, and now, now the, the Obama administration did it too, of not holding the corporations themselves. So there's actually something called the Corporate Prosecution Registry, which tracks um, when companies rather than the individuals are charged with violating federal law. And what we're seeing is during the Trump um, administration, there's been like maybe five you know, times that it was at the administrative level. So I, I think that we're sort of hitting the easy targets, right? It's sort of like when we used to have these discussions about why the U.S., uh, why prosecution and cops are going after crack rather than cocaine. One's a lot easier to find and deal with and prosecute successfully and make it look like you've done a wonderful job. Here, by holding the corporations harmless way more often than not, it's sending the wrong message, right? So if if the target isn't at the top, the change isn't going to come from the top. I think that the bleak picture for the American dream in this regard, right? Because I think the, the American dream means many things to very many different um, populations. But again, when I think about these three legs of Trump's immigration policy stool, one is build a wall to keep people out. Two is to go after and deport illegal immigrants. And third is to go after people who are legal immigrants. It spells disaster. Absolutely. And I guess the question also becomes, so what other aspects of what we're seeing in the country today tie into this American dream? I mean, you and I have mentioned with obviously the gun violence that we're seeing. Um, how does that fit into the larger American dream conversation in your eyes? You know, obviously, this is kind of like um, Epstein in prison, right? We've got to do something at the core. And I think understanding that gun violence is actually a public health crisis is an important thing. Understanding that mass shootings, you know, there's a lot of things. For example, mental health statistics are not so dramatically uh, different here than they are in other parts of the world. Why is it that in the United States we find so many mass shootings? Well, a lot of it comes down to the availability of guns. And I think the the type of weapons that we have available and the ease of access to them and the public perception of a threat that the government is going to come and try to take your weapons from you. There's no factual validity to any of this, right? But it goes back to what we we're talking about with Epstein earlier, that the in a court of public opinion, if people believe that the government is going to come and take your weapons and you've got to arm yourself to the teeth, it makes people, it galvanizes people around this myth of the Second Amendment exists to protect us against all that. But we do have a serious gun violence problem in the United States. And we do see, for example, in San Jose, after the Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting, um, the mayor proposing a city ordinance that would require firearm owners to either get liability insurance for their weapon or to pay a fee to cover the public cost of gun violence to the city. So I think what we're seeing is some attempts at changes at the margins in some small areas, but we're not getting to the root cause, which is that we we need meaningful gun control legislation. Um, I don't think, see that happening immediately. I think the, the cards are stacked against it with the power of the NRA and the uh, congressional support for not uh, supporting gun control. But I think here on one hand, you know, we're, we're kind of literally killing the American dream through gun violence and mass shootings. We're killing the American dream by coming up with a definition of 
who, who is an American and what it means to be an American, and also normalizing hate, and, and also looking at the plight of rural America. So I think these things are all <clears throat> interconnected, that if you look at gun violence, and if you look at immigration reform, and if you look at what's happening in rural America, you know, there's an article on Axios called The Rural American Death Spiral, and I remember thinking to myself, gosh, with a title like that, that's like something Will would come up with, you know, with a title that I like dark. that one. Yeah, yeah. You got to read it. But it does point out things about like the opioid crisis and the uh, lack of economic mobility and, and um, what what the American dream is as we move to the urban centers and we leave parts of rural America behind. What happens in those areas where the job prospects are very low? What happens in those places where it's even more difficult and we find the um, it's sort of the doubling down on the adverse effects of being a minority in some of these populations, right? So I think the American dream of, you know, the white picket fence around, you know, the the house with the blue shutters and, um, you know, mowing lawn with your, you know, your 2.5 kids is pretty much gone. And right now I think we're trying to figure out, you know, what is the American dream when I think it's been very contaminated or polluted by this notion of making America great or keeping America great is that we don't have sort of multiple visions of an American dream, which I think does actually exist, but sort of like this, um, this binary world where there's this American dream for everybody, which is mobility, which is security and stability and peace and prosperity uh, and contributing to a greater good and to society. And another version of the American dream, which is I want all that for me, but all these other people are threatening it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, for me, I agree with a lot of what you're saying about we need to tackle those. I think you and I would probably come to slightly different solutions on how to tackle some of those. But I will say the one thing from the last two weeks that I really think needs to be emphasized is we have a, a problem with gun violence generally. We do not have an epidemic of mass shootings, though. I mean, when we look at the numbers, we can go just to the CDC research. Find an epidemic of Well, I mean, gun- I look at okay. it as if you look at CDC, less okay. than 1% of gun deaths in this country are caused by mass shootings. We have a bigger problem with people putting a gun to their head than using mass shootings. Um, I mean, when we look at it, that suicide and homicide are 98% of gun deaths. We need to make sure that we're responding to the actual problems instead of tackling just the big media spectacles that we create. Um, I think that's a good point because there was, um, I, I read some research recently on this that, you know, one of the easy solutions is, you know, if, if guns are so tethered to violence against other people and to oneself, well, then require trigger locks will then require um, guards that are put on guns. Well, the research also indicates that the people, going back to the argument even about Epstein and how we need to better understand the motivations for suicide, Will, is that um, people who are bound and determined to commit suicide and have access to a weapon will also take the extra step to unlock that weapon. Yep. And I think I think that the... I think what's troubling, and sometimes this is the the very liberal argument, is that if we didn't have so many damn guns, you know, we don't have that many people bludgeoning themselves to death or stabbing themselves to death. What do we do with people, unfortunately, um, severing their arteries? I mean, suicide is a, is a great, remarkable tragedy. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Yep, and but it's got to, for me, it's, it's that point, it's 
it's mental health again. It's figuring out how do we fund and fix that? How do we handle addiction? Where do we put our money that we get a return? Yeah. Again, coming out from the right as a fiscal conservative, I want to spend money where I get something back. And getting people off addiction, getting people to not think suicide, those things help us. Um, but if we focus only on how do we stop somebody from mowing down 20 people in 20 seconds, that's clearly a problem, too. Like, I'm not saying that's not an issue, but that's not happening as frequently as other types of gun-related violence that I think we could get to quicker answers for. Yeah, I mean, that's political relativity right there. It's like, you know, yes, there's we we do so much harm to ourselves and others with guns that the number of mass shootings is small in comparison, but the number of mass shootings in the United States is far greater than anywhere else in the world. So one of the things that I think we can look at as a matter of uh, mental health is not just to say, because even in public health circles, the argument is mental health is everywhere around the world, but only we find people engaging in mass shootings. I think what we need to look at more um, clearly is what is the mental health contribution to mass shootings? What is it that's making the people who do engage in this engage in this behavior? We know it's not watching video games, right? You know, the evidence there, that there is none. Um, but what is what is the causal attribute that links the United States um, a certain segment, a very small segment, but a meaningful segment. Because while the number of people who are mass shooters is small, the number of victims of mass shootings is large. So what is the impulse to do that? And I think, you know, like anything else, well, I think here, liberal or conservative will probably agree on uh, the following premise that, you know, we're researchers and, you know, we, we got to research this. We need to figure out what that motivation is for these types of atrocities. Absolutely. Um, well, that's going to be all for this episode. As soon as Brian and I are done recording this show, we're going to do our special supporters exclusive show. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team's efforts and equal pay in the United States, and then also about the protests in Hong Kong. If you're a supporter, that'll be in your podcast app by the time you're listening to this. And that's one of the many things we do for supporters. So to become a supporter, find out more, check out our Patreon page patreon.com forward slash politics guys or you can go directly to politicsguys.com forward slash support you've got questions comments corrections random thoughts you want to share you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com our facebook page is facebook.com forward slash politics guys page and we're on twitter at politics guys subscribing to the show really helps us out as to sharing episodes we really rely on word of mouth so feel free to share leave reviews tell your friends the executive producers of the politics guys are bruce johnson wilma moreno Andrew Masker and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. Brian and I are going to do uh, some Q&A, and we hope you'll join us then. Thanks. Bye.